Welcome to the Guitar Almany Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your master class in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. Okay, so we are here with Dr. Stanley Yates. He Hi. is professor of guitar at, at, at Stanley Yates. He's professor of guitar at Austin P. State University in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Um, how you doing, Stanley? I'm doing very well, Carl. Uh, good, to see, good to see you're getting off to a very good start there with your pronunciation and, and wordage and everything. <laughs> you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> it's all good. Oh, it's I, can edit, I can edit it if, if, I, if, I, if I want to, you know. Sure, <laughs> but know. That, that's not we're do, what we're doing here. This is, this is candid. This is all, all about the here and the now. So, so uh, you've been at Austin P for how long now? 26 years. Wow. Five months, 17 days, four hours. <laughs> it's been 26 years. Yeah. Yeah, 26 years. Wow. That's, that's great. And, and you, have, you have a really interesting perspective and a really interesting experience, I think, because you, know, you began your career in the UK, and that was, what, in the, in the early 80s? Am I yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right at yeah. the beginning of the 80s, yeah. Right. So it, uh, we should we should offer a disclaimer at this at this point. I think um, you know Stanley and I are very good friends. We've known each other for for many many years, and uh, for probably about twenty years, uh, we're roommates together for ten plus days every year at the University of Cincinnati Summer Workshop. So it was uh, we know each other very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this is a little bit different for me to uh, to have this because I I know the answers to most of these questions already, but maybe maybe some other folks do. But I also have perspective that's different, and you know, I think one of the things when I think when I think about the things that I know about you and your career and and you know what's going on. I, I think that's really interesting is you, you had this this experience in the UK that, you know you were you were a successful active performer in that world which is you know a much different world from the world you're living in now and the world we're all living in now frankly I mean it you know it's but it's it's so you've had this 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 really interesting kind of uh, transformation of experiences from that world and then coming here and doing what you did when you were, were, were a student here and, and all that kind of stuff. So we, so we should talk about that. So, you know, one of the things that, that you told me about a long time ago was the scene in the UK when you first started your career. And it, it seemed like there was, there, there was an opportunity for a young person to actually have a performing career at that time in that place. Oh, no, did my internet fuck up? What happened then? There we are. Are you here? I'm here. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Okay. That there will be an edit. <laughs> it says my internet <laughs> connection is unstable. <laughs> so yeah, did you did you did you hear my question? You got up to it seemed like there was an opportunity for a young person to have a career. Right. Yeah, a performing career specifically. Yeah. 
Yeah. So what was, I mean, what was that like? What kind of gigs were those? Who was sponsoring them? Yes. Yeah, so living doing that? Like, I did what it. was that life like? I did it for about, I would say about eight or nine years. I did nothing okay. but concerts and bits of teaching, you know. Yeah. A couple of half days, uh, part-time teaching in a couple of schools, some private students, and the rest was concerts. I never played a gig in my entire life until I moved to the Dallas area. So I'd never played at a wedding or anything right. like that, or concerts. Uh, none of it was planned, really. You know, I, I went to college because I was obsessed with music, you know. Right. And it, pretty quickly they started forming me out to play concerts and I just followed along. I just thought, well, I guess this is what you do, you know. Right. Did and you I carried on. Did you of any kind or how did it work? Not really. I had a little, had a little bit of low-key management, you know, nothing. Okay important you know um you just had started to build a reputation in well yeah I, so i've done a lot of sort of community by the time i graduated you know i'd uh, won a couple of awards nationally not in guitar right. but music in general actually and um are there any are there any guitar specific competitions there were no guitar competitions in the uk yeah. during my time there except for the big one at leeds castle the Segovia okay. competition that um Japanese Horiyuchi won. Paul Gabriel second. I think he was fifty. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so I didn't enter that. I can't remember why or what. But there really weren't any competitions. Um, but I entered one in Greece and got a prize there. Uh, but anyway, you know, by the time I graduated, I'd done a lot of concerts. I'd done concertos and, and a lot of stuff. And I just I'd, I'd kind of begun to get on the circuit already. And it just carried on. So there was a very good network of guitar societies in the UK that put on concerts. The fee structure was pretty bad. But, right. you know, uh, and it got worse, which led to <laughs> at least one very high profile guitarist uh, moving elsewhere. Uh, but it kind of went south a little bit before the time I left. But it was still in pretty good shape when, when, when I left. And there were quite a few festivals and uh, music societies. There was just a, uh, an infrastructure for, for getting concerts. If your bio was okay and you worked hard and, and learned interesting pieces, there was work to be had and you could do it, you know. And it was, were the guitarists that were playing on these series, were they all people that were living in the UK at the time? No, uh, there'd be international players as well. I mean, I remember okay. playing a, a concert at a place called the Old Malt House okay. down south somewhere. Very interesting, very interesting place. And the concert before mine was Eduardo Fernandez, you know? Oh, my God. And I, I think he just got his Decca record contract or something, you know? Okay, right. But that was all very exciting for me as well, to, to be able to be on a concert series and look at some of these big-name players. Right. It made you feel good about what you were doing. Right. Right. I mean, it didn't make, didn't make you feel particularly competitive. <laughs> you certainly felt you weren't wasting your time. And, and the support for these these guitar societies in this series was was that a state supported thing or no, was it all not in England? No, no, not in England. It was all most of it. Well, there were organizations that would be funded by the you know, the city or the or the county. Things right. like that. There were grants and things, but most of those guitar societies, I think, were just operating on uh, ticket sales and a lot of goodwill. Right. Right. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, but it, it was it was pretty good. I mean, there are um, there are many amusing stories, battle stories that everybody has from those days. I mean, there were some right. absurd situations. 
but in general, it was good. Well, you, you know, you're going to have to tell one of those. Now that you brought that up, you you have to tell us about a, a well, I'll tell you battle one. story. I'll, I'll, I, can't, I won't tell the whole story, but uh, and I won't mention the actual place. It's a yeah. <laughs> small town in the Midlands. Um, so they had a guitar society, and you know, I, I, in those days, I would send my brochure, you know, and a le handwritten letter, you know, because they were all listed in the back of the Guitar International magazine. Right. And I'd say, oh, can I do a concert for you? Here's my pro. And they would, uh, usually it would be yes. The next year, you, yes. You know, so <laughs> I went and um, they, took, they took me directly to the venue for this concert. It was a pub, right? <laughs> and <laughs> but we, were upstairs. We, we were upstairs, right? The concert's upstairs in a kind of function room. So, the, the, so <laughs> it's a bunch of those you know, kind of circular tables with two or three chairs around. And an ashtray and some beer mats and pints. <laughs> so the green room, the green room was at the very top of the stairs, next to the entryway into the function room, and it was the ladies' toilet. <laughs> and I mean, literally, just a cubicle big enough to fit a commode in. Oh, I'm sitting right. on it Fantastic. with my guitar warming up, and and the doors open and people are coming past, and they're going, "All right, great." <laughs> <laughs> And um, then you go on to play, and it's a little square dais. Did, did, did you do an intermission in that concert? Yeah. So you had to return to the road. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all going down to get their pints. Excuse me yeah. while I powder my nose. <laughs> I'm sure at the end of the concert, I'm sitting on that commode and the walking past going, hey, I enjoyed that. And thank you very much. But what if... I mean, of course, I think of these things. What, what if somebody needed to use the... Well, they were out of luck. They have to go down <laughs> But there was a guy in the very... There was a little stage, you know, one of these little six-foot-high risers, just, just about big enough to get a chair on and a right. footstool. And you're scared it's just going to fall off the back or something, you know. <laughs> and there's a guy in the table right, right, right there. I mean, just right there. He's got his pint and he's just grinning... And nodding, oh, I play something, you go, ah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Miss a nose. Fantastic. Oh, my so, God. You know, that, that's true. I mean, that's all true yeah. stuff. You could talk to anybody on the circuit in those days. I'm sure they had the same story. Yeah. Graham Devine was very young then. Oh, yeah. He, he just played there the week before I did, I think, or the time before I did. <laughs> I, think, I think it was Graham. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> what such a glamorous career. <laughs> yeah, be a but guitarist. You know, there were other things. I mean, I got hooked up with a Dutch guitarist, and we had a duo. I mean, we would right. you know spend a few weeks together in each other's countries, practice and tour around, and and with that, we got on the British Arts Council touring kind of roster. We did a concert at the British Embassy, you know, in oh, fantastic. Uh, in Amsterdam, things like that, and yeah. Oh, so, you know, we I got to play some good venues as well. I mean, like the Bosch Auditorium in Gettergen Den Bosch, which is just full of Bosch murals, you know. Yeah. And oh, like Holland's cool. leading music critic is in the front row. Oh, fantastic! And uh, <laughs> I remember that review as well. Um, and you were, I mean, you were you were a young man at that time, right? You were in your twenties. Twenties. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and I mean, that, that scene really changed, though. Yeah, well, you know, I can't say that it was easy either. Right. You could do it. You could do it. 
yeah. and not feel that you were uh, facing impending doom. No. Right. <laughs> but then things change, you know, when you have a child. And, and what a and what a great opportunity for you to like really cut your teeth, though. You know, to 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 have so much performing experience at that age. You know, to, to well, what's out what that what that was all really about. When I look back on it. You know, the education system in in that time in the UK was different. I mean, it was hard to get in. Right. Perhaps too hard to get in. But it, but it guaranteed that no one's going to fail and everyone's going to succeed. And it was all free. It was all government-sponsored and right. county government-sponsored. And they paid you money to go or to live, right. you know. And it was an investment that they were making. It was, that's what they wanted to invest. How, how many years did you go to school in the UK? Well, I can't remember. If it was a three-year or a four-year degree, I've been thinking about that, and I can't quite remember. I did my master's degree in eight months. I know that. Right. I went back to do that to move to the states. Right. Oh, okay. You had. I was still. I was, I was already thought, okay. on, on my way, but I just. But and the, the, and the, de the degree structure is different from the way it is in the states, too, isn't it? Uh, well, there are different kinds of things. If you're in a conservatory situation or a university situation, they're very different. You know. I mean, of course, I did the physics first, right? Right. So, you know, that was a different thing. But um, So when you say uh, you did the physics first, well, I switched you, did a you did a physics degree. But I switched over to music. Did you finish the physics degree? Or no. Did, no, okay. You started in yeah. physics, okay. I was pretty good at it, you know. Uh, I you know, liked it. But I just realized one day I was spending much more time playing uh, pinball, <laughs> snooker, and guitar than I was thinking about, you know, second-order differential equations, let's say. <laughs> right. <laughs> It actually it was a funny thing. I just went on holiday with my girlfriend to London and took my guitar. And we happened to be staying with her friends who were at the Royal College of Music. And I had my Dover Bach violin book I was reading every morning. So was, you know, and they were kind of looking at me. And one of them said, do you realize that you, you know... Why are you a physics major? <laughs> you know, it's kind of a thing. And we, and we went busking and all this. And I thought, you know, I'd already got some, you know, that... that Performance diploma thing that I taught myself and, and I taught myself the theory and the reading right. and, you know, and it's like, yeah, what the hell am I doing here, really? <laughs> and the minute I got there, it all just happened, you know, but, but what's really amazing is when I think back, are this the number of concerts I gave while I was an undergraduate student? Right. I think it's about a hundred or something. That's I've got amazing. the programs. I used to number the programs, you know. Right. And it is. Was, was, was that something that, I mean, was that a typical experience for somebody in your, in that? Yeah, well, it, it was very program? difficult. It was difficult to be accepted into the performance stream. Okay. And most people weren't in the performance stream. They were in other okay. things. Composition, uh, education, whatever. Right. And they only took people that they felt would actually have a career. Okay. And that's why they're farming you out right away, because you're already at that level. That's very smart, actually. So, you know, I was playing the Pro Ucube Allegro when I, before I went to the school. Right. You know, and things like that. Uh, having a hard time with the Allegro. <laughs> <laughs> able to get through it. I have you know, no I idea what you're talking Berkeley about. <laughs> I'm saying, I was playing a, right. a lot of pretty big pieces, right. and, and, and that's like kind of... It, it's, as far as I know, I mean, you were pretty much self-instructed before you went... Pretty much, yeah. I had, a, I had a couple of lessons with Neil Smith, who okay. was a pretty well-known player in those yeah. days. I just had a chat with Neil on the phone. We haven't talked in a decade, I don't think. 
So that was very helpful. He was just very practical and just basically pointed out all the stupid things I was doing. You're talking about repertoire of a, of a level there that, that, I mean, you knew about that music, obviously, or else, I mean, was it, was it through recordings and, and... Yeah, well, there was an amazing classical guitar culture in yeah. Britain, the 70s. 80s, you know, when I was playing guitar, starting out on guitar and stuff, because Julian Bream and John Williams. Sure, were. right, of course, yeah. And, um, you know, the BBC, there were only two TV channels, and then there was a third one came, but they would have documentaries about those guys on the actual TV, you know, right. after Gilligan's Island or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> John Williams had his own TV series for a while. Oh my gosh, is that still available <laughs> anywhere? I think there's bits of it on the internet. I don't know if it's oh all, my, but he would oh be, my gosh. and he would, and he'd have a big pile of music, and he'd say, "Tonight I'm going to play some pieces by a Paraguayan composer called Agustin Barrios Mangare," and no one had ever heard of this of course, person, right? Yeah. He just, oh my god, it's amazing! Wow. You know, it, on, it really, on regular TV, yeah, it was on amazing. TV, filmed in Manchester. Um, then the BBC radio was incredible because you get the TV guide. And it would list all the radio shows that were on Radio 1, 2, 3, and 4. And on Radio 3 was the classical music station. Okay. And they were like in hour slots. You know, symphony hour, Monday symphony hour, you know, all these sure. things. And they had a weekly guitar program. Right. And it would normally be some, some um, guitarist who was in the country to tour. Okay. The BBC studio would record about 50 minutes of music and have a 10 minute, 10 minutes of interview. And I'd record them on cassette. Right. And then sometimes Bream would come in and he'd, and he'd play like the tippet blue guitar before anyone had ever heard it, you know? Right. In fact, I think that's how the Bennett Sonata recording survives. It's actually, he played it on the radio on the BBC. Really? Never... Oh, wow. That's very cool. Oh, amazing things. And th sometimes they would have two shows a week. They had a series called something like Guitar Encores and it was, rebroadcasts of live concerts from the past. So I've got recordings of Bream doing live concerts from the 60s and 70s. Oh, I mean, millions and, uh, and so anybody who was like, for example, when Barwaco's career took off, right. I, heard, I heard him first. Is that the, the same week I read about him in the guitar magazine, he's on the BBC radio playing the three Spanish pieces of Rodrigo in a second loot suite. I mean, and it's like, my God, is that live? Is that really? <laughs> David Russell would be broadcast live a lot. And, uh, you yeah. know, it, 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 so that's where you got the stuff. You had the magazine. Well, there were two magazines, actually, at war with each other. That's a whole other story as well. <laughs> and uh, John Dewart was writing for both. He was writing for one under his own name and one under a pseudonym. Oh my Essentially God. arguing with himself. Arguing you know? with himself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it, it was so it was very vibrant in that way. And I, I didn't have tons of records. You know, I bought some of Bream's loot records and some of William's records. I never was influenced or interested or knew anything about Segovia except reading about him. Right. Like reading about him. Like, this is the guy who taught Bremen Williams. He must be an absolute monster. <laughs> and when I finally heard him on the radio, it was like, was that, was that the same guy that they've been talking about? <laughs> of course, I've come to appreciate right. as I've gotten older. It's, it's is it, is it, isn't that such a complex thing to try to digest, you know? Yeah. The, the, 
the role that he played and the damage that was done, but the good yeah. that was done. And like, I, it's just so bizarre, you know, and there's so, you know, for me, you know, you're, you're a little bit older than I am, but you know, when, when, when I was a young person, it, that's all anybody talked about. Like yeah. he, he was the guitar. There was, well, there was, nothing, there was nothing else. It was it. Right. But when I moved, to, he didn't come to England very much. Right. In my time, because the money wasn't there. He was putting all his energy into North America because that's where the fees were. So all the master classes, concerts, it was all in America. So his influence here was huge. Right. He wasn't very influential in Europe, really. That's interesting. So that's why, I mean, I, I suspect this is the reason that, I'm not talking about right now, but you know, in the 80s, let's say, in 90s, that if you went to Spain, Italy, France, Norway, Holland, England, Germany, they all had a different kind of school of guitar. Right. A different technique, a different sound concept, a different repertoire, you know, which to me is, is great. That's, that's interesting, yeah. Now, when I came here, it was on the tail end of the Segovia thing. I think Segovia had died by 1990, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, died in 86, I think. Yeah. So it was kind of wearing off, but there were still plenty of teachers around, influential teachers whose entire guitar course. concept was, was that. And then you had some other, inf well, the, the Aaron Shearer, Shearer more, more contemporary school, uh, very influential as well. But what I found here is that it was guitar playing was very homogenized. Everybody had yes. the same hand positions, yes. the same sound, the same approach, uh -huh. you know, which I found unusual. Right. And what, you know, what's disturbing about that, of course, is that if, if you're not in that, right, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I always, I always wondered what role the, the recording industry played in, in that happening, you know, and, and I think when you hear the the sound of the guitar on record even you know even though you might be listening to guitarists that have particularly unique sounds or different sounds from one another or, or different concepts there's something about the nature of of the recording process that changes the sound the first time i heard a classical guitar recording i didn't recognize it as a classical guitar right you know because it's so right. different it's such a different sound from what oh, you're right you're absolutely when right when we're hearing the guitar in a room absolutely. you know and and i think something happened in the recording industry where somebody or not somebody but like a group of people decided or the market decided or something somehow it was decided that this is what a guitar should sound like on a recording yeah, and, well, it, and i think young players listened to all these recordings emulated them and like and that's where this homogenization of, of well, sound has come. Yeah, that's from. a really interesting point, and I'd never never considered that before. I think now of Parkening, put his earplugs in or whatever he used to do, or sitting with the right. washing machine, you know, and trying to get the obvious sound. Right. That's from a recording, you know, <laughs> or from listening to somebody play a hundred feet away or two hundred feet away. Right. That's yeah. very interesting. But it, what's really curious to me is that you have someone like Julian Bream. Who sounds, who sounded unlike anyone we'd ever heard yeah, before. Unmistakable. No one unmistakable, since, yeah. No one since has come close to that use of color. Right. Why not? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. I would like to know. Yeah. That's well, that's what I so. think is valuable in any 
really in any creative enterprise, and, in, and creativity comes into all kinds of things. It's not just the arts. Uh, you know, creativity is really being different, finding a different perspective. You know, sure. And that's what it's really about. Right. So it takes this, a lot of courage to do that, though, especially if you. Well, it does when there's pressure. When there's that external yeah. pressure telling right. you not to. Right. You know, for a career or something. Um, I've been accused of trying to be different for the sake of being different. I think, well, what's wrong with that? Right, right. I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> why not? Like, who, who, who does that hurt? <laughs> you know, I think it's difficult in a few ways. It's difficult for the for the players who are who are involved in the enterprise because if you're playing the same repertoire and you're playing it in the same way with the same general sound and style, you're really engaged in a game of being correct. Right, of course. You know? Yeah. And then from the audience perspective, if it all just sounds the same, then why am I going to go and hear this again? Right, of course. That's why people... But do you, do you think that, that it creates a level of expectation, though, too, on the other side of it? Like, if, if, I'm, if I'm a guitar aficionado going to every guitar concert that I, that I can, am I expecting it to fall in, within those bounds, or... Am I am I actually like impressed when it steps outside of them? You know, and I think there are probably examples of both. I know? agree. I think there's a bit of both there, yeah. But if you think about the players who've become successful, I mean, you think about someone like Roland Dion's. Um, oh, who, yeah, you know, absolutely unique. With yeah. us, but it, you know, you can understand how we got so well known and successful, right? Because his playing is different. The repertoire right. is different. Everything about it. And yeah. concept is different. You know, now you can be too different. I think people like, for example, in the, let's say in the 80s, people like um, Stepan Rack and mm -hmm. Kazuhito Yamashita mm -hmm. were so different, even though they were completely brilliant. I think that, they were ahead that, of their time, though, too. Yeah, Yamashita especially. Always just couldn't handle it, you know. Uh, so does that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, but back to your your original point about you know creative creativity and doing something different and and being conscious about it. What's interesting, you, know, you mentioned people like Stefan Rock and, and and Yamashita. They didn't change what they were doing because of because no. of it, you know, which is fantastic. because they're they're artists. They're honest, right? They're doing what they have to do, right? Which yeah. is, is is and they would have done that anyway, no matter what. The yeah. consequences are what was surrounding they're doing that and and it's it's a really interesting thing because i think the other the on the other side you'll find people who i, I and we're probably all somewhere in the in the middle of this but like you, you can chase your tail you know you like you're always trying to 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 fit in or do the do the the thing get the orthodox right you know and you just you find you're you're constantly spinning around, and I think I think for young people it's really hard to to resist the urge to do that. You know, it, it, you're, you're trying to build a career, yeah. You know, like you said, trying to do the quote right things. You know, and and you know part of this maturity aspect of well, it is you could get to a certain point where you say, you know what, I'm just I'm tired of doing that. I'm going to do my own thing. If people want to come along, great. You know. Yeah. No, I mean it's not a simple issue. I mean, it's a complex issue, isn't it? Um, you know, younger players, they need to be, they need to measure themselves against the established sure. players, you know, and they need to have that foundation. You need to, you need to take on right. the foundation. You've got to have that. And then you start doing things differently. So Paul Galbraith would be a great example of that, actually. 
Yeah. You know, when he was getting very well known, when he was on TV in the UK, won the Young Musician of the Year, or he's a finalist, I'm not quite sure if he won or not, playing the Aramos with his eyes, he's 15 years old. Right. And he's got the guitar normal. And he's right. got his eyes closed, and he's just playing the crap out of it. Right. <laughs> and then he just kind of vanished, you know. I guess he went to college and, and at some point moved to Brazil. And then he suddenly reemerges, you know, several years later, sitting on the floor with his legs crossed with the guitar right. like this. Right. Playing the complete violin music of Bach, immaculate. Right. It's sounding amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing, you know. Um, but, but that's another example. I mean, Paul is a very serious, deep, philosophical musician. Right. Absolutely. And in order to, for him to realize his ideas, he's had to have extra strings added to it. Right. He's had to have a box made and he has to have a box made. That's what he has to do right. to express his ideas. Yeah. But he's well known. He's not well known for the gimmick. I mean, of course, it makes him memorable. He's always the guy who has a box. Right. <laughs> the box but it's really, it's really the recordings. Right. That, that are, you know, the and, thing. And, and anybody that, that, that you talk to who's actually seen him play in person, yeah, you know, no, it's everybody is just blown away by it. it yeah, it's, it's it's a phenomenal thing, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, you and I have what had this. Happened? What would have happened if Paul had grown up in the U.S. trying to do that in the nineteen eighties, nineties? I wonder. Oh yeah, I, who can speculate? You know, like. Be, who knows? Yeah, I. It's. Yeah. Yeah, he certainly wouldn't have been on TV playing the Arnwas at fifteen. I. I, <laughs> I, I guarantee that. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are no American television programs that do well, this. Yes. <laughs> very recently, the BBC made a very lavishly produced documentary about a British classical guitarist. Wow. Chris Milosh. Uh, is, oh. Uh, UK. Yeah, I know, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. They're interviewing people like Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, my gosh. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 as far down the pecking order, the cultural pecking order, the guitar has slipped in the UK, it still exists. <laughs> it gets some attention, yeah. The general culture, you know. <laughs> you know, one of the other things that, that comes to mind is a conversation that, that you and I have had several times about all of the, the just strange and weird things that guitarists sometimes do, you know, and, and I, in, in a, in a non, uh, non qualitative fashion, I'd like to put Paul Galbraith in, 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 into that, into that frame and comparing to what goes on in, in, in other aspects of the classical music world. If you think of pianists or violinists, you know, the, the two, you know, that kind of behavior would never be tolerated. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's only in the guitar world that, that people do these freaky... I don't think I've ever seen a violinist play behind the head. Right, of course, yeah. I mean, it just it's it's so funny, you know? The guitar, though, is an interesting instrument. It, you know, all instruments are unique. Right. But the guitar has so many sides to it, so many facets to it. Right. Almost anything goes. Right. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's you know. crazy. It's, it's you can have you, ten, you can have eleven. We, we've we've often talked about this, you know, in, in in 
in kind of derogatory fashion, like, oh my God, we, can you imagine a pianist is doing that? You know, or like, why are we such freaks? But, but I think there's also on the other side of it, it allows people like Paul to, to do really tremendous things yeah. and apply, a, you know, a creative principle and, and, you know, that probably would not have been possible, you know. Well, um, I also yeah. think you've, sorry to interrupt you. No, go ahead. I'm the guest, after all. You are the guest. <laughs> We're just chatting. <laughs> um, no, it reminds me of Jörn Solskjaer, right? And I, you know who I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's one of my favorite players. He's a fantastic really. player, yeah. I saw him in a concert at the Wigmore Hall in London in about 1980. He just won the Paris competition. Now, I've been to many hundreds of concerts, right? Yeah. I can say, well, I saw Bream, I remember he played this piece. He may have played that piece. But I remember the whole program that Solskjaer played. He did the Amazing. first half on Ramirez. He played the uh, Hilding Hellness Partita. Oh, my God. 54, Mosso the Concert by Stone. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, on his, on his, on his alt guitar, right. which has God knows how many strings, and it's tuned in third or something, you know. Yeah. And he played the uh, E major lute suite. Okay. The Prefugue Allegro. And it was yeah. astonishing. Yeah. You know, it didn't, it wasn't the 11 string guitar or however many strings it had. It wasn't that. It was just the sound of, of what, he, what he could do musically with that instrument. With those fingerings, there's no, the legato is completely there, the overlapping is all there, and it's completely under control. And um, It's like a Baroque loop. <laughs> but we're, we're very lazy in that way as guitarists. You know, if somebody writes a piece with a couple of strings retuned, we have to write the score out as though it's too normally. <laughs> like Domenicone or something. I mean, that's an extreme example, but right, right. there could be a lot more done with score detours, perhaps. Well, you know, I mean, there there is precedence for that in the 17th century repertoire, you know, a yeah. lot of it. So Campiana, seven different yeah. tunings, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the Russian guitar with that third business. Absolutely. I got to know that fairly well before sure. it destroyed my index finger. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing playing yeah. classical period music. Right. on the guitar tuned in thirds, because you can do things, you can do pretty much everything you can do with a regular tuned guitar, but a whole lot more. Right, and a lot I mean, of Fast scales, fast runs in thirds and stuff, and completely close voicings and Albertis and everything. Yeah. That's the tuning for that kind of music, really. I think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, so. Anyway. So, so back, back to, back, no, it's great, this is fantastic. Um, but back to your, your like your experience and and so you you know you were in the uk doing doing the concerts and whatnot and then you know life brought you to the united states thankfully for us and for you know for, for those of us who know you personally for some of you, for some of you maybe. what's that i said for some of you maybe yeah <laughs> now and and you were i mean so you you had a career going on and yeah. then, you know, for, for personal reasons and family things, you had to come here and... I quit my career, um, quit my friends. Yeah. Was was it like, I mean, was it really like a clean break? Like, okay, I'm done with that and I'm going to do something else now? Or was, did you try uh, I, to make you know, I, I'd already made the decision, uh, you know, a few years before I moved here that I was really wanting to stop playing concerts. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, partly because... Uh, having a young child. So I travel around and take the child and wife everywhere. 
It's very expensive. Okay. It's a lot of fun. It's bloody expensive. Right. Two airplane tickets every time you go somewhere, you know. <laughs> and there was that. And just to have a more stable kind of home life. And um, then my wife was American, of course. Right. Actually, she still is. <laughs> <laughs> She's still American. Still American. <laughs> Not my wife anymore. <laughs> and... Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, it was a natural thing. I, I was getting ready to move to Holland. That was definitely on my radar. Really? Okay. That was definitely on my radar because my duo partner was there. Right. And all that. And then I was doing this, I did this master's degree very quickly at Liverpool University. And I was getting ready. I mean, it was definitely in the works that I would do a PhD there, probably in some music anal analytic topic with the goal of becoming a music analysis you know full-time lecturer that was that was kind of my goal but then this sort of thing came up well hang on in the states they have full-time guitar positions <laughs> now, they don't have that in Europe. you might now they didn't there was no full-time so it's like well how'd you get one of those <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to have a doctorate right. well you can't they don't have doctorates in guitar <laughs> in the UK, you know, <laughs> you only have them in America. So suddenly there's, and I've been to the States a few times, you know, I've done some, okay. and um, you know, in England, we grew up watching American TV all the time and American movies. And we feel that we know America really well and we just can't wait to get here, you know. <laughs> so I've been in New York, you know, and I've been in Texas and Kansas, a few places, you know, kind of, Got a bit of a feel for the place, but it's like well, there are actually several thousand universities. There's only like thirty in the UK. It's like several right. colleges and universities, and there's all these guitar programs. And there's a thing called the Chronicle of Higher Education, and it has adverts in the back for full-time guitar jobs. How do you get one? You got to do one of these doctorates, you know. So, um, you know, there are a few options. Uh, I ended up, you know, doing, getting a, you know, teaching fellowship at North Texas and uh, yeah. moved to that area. I was there for four years, three and a half years. Uh, built up a lot of work in Dallas, I've got to say. That was the first time I ever did gigs. Right. But they were very high paying. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to say, there was something of an appreciation there for this kind of thing. There's a real classical guitar culture in Dallas. Right. And I was doing some session work every now and again with the symphony because I can read music, you know, pretty well. And uh, <laughs> playing in early music, continuo, and doing concerts there as well, and chamber music at the university and everything. So it was a very, very rich experience. And the only concerts outside that I did, I would just come back to England once a year and do a few things. Oh, interesting. Okay. But just because I had those connections still and because I want to see my brother and things like that. Sure, sure. Alive then. Basically pay, paying for the trip. <laughs> the whole idea was to quit traveling around playing concerts. Interesting. Okay. And then I was getting ready. Once I graduated, I was getting ready to start my own publishing company. That's what I wanted to do. That was my goal. Really? I was going to no, stick around Dallas. I, I did not know that. Do all the fruit. So I bought a computer. I typed, I hand typed my dissertation on a typewriter. I've, I've, I've actually, you know what? I have seen that in the past month. Oh God, just don't read it. <laughs> I read parts of it. It's not my best work. <laughs> they thought it was good. They gave me an award for it. I've always felt guilty. It's the beginning of your career, so you, you, yeah. Well, you're, you're know, still evolving. Yeah. It was just a deep make, so if <laughs> if you know, it was 150 pages, but right. 
if I'd have had another year to work on it, it would have been something right. different. Sure. But anyway, so at, at, at the time you were working on, on, on your dissertation, your son was how old? Thomas would have been, uh, well, he was, he was two and a half when we moved. Right. So you, you're, you're writing a 150 page dissertation for for a DMA with Thomas while, running while you're supporting a family with a, with and a Isabel as a baby. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. She would have been bored by then too. Yeah. Uh, my wife wasn't working, and I was right. driving to Fort so, Worth. I, I think I think it's okay that, that you know it wasn't your best work. You probably had a lot of concerns happening. I turned out a ton of work in that in that situation. I was driving to Dallas, endlessly playing. I had the energy back then. When you're that old, you right. have a lot of energy. And I also had an imperative, you know. But yeah, but my so I. I, I saw someone who had typed some music out in Finale for a paper, right. and it freaked me out. Right. <laughs> and these and this is the early oh, days of computer typesetting. I mean, yeah. that was that was a brand new so, technology. I graduated in December. They hired me the next semester to teach in the guitar program, and I drove to Dallas, and I bought a Windows computer, a monitor. PostScript emulator printed. It cost a bloody fortune because that's what oh, you have to have for Finale to print. And I've got the box of Finale, like a suitcase it is, you know, right. <laughs> and I brought them home and we plugged it all in and started prodding it, you know, and I started learning Finale. And my entire goal was I'm going to make my own publishing company. I'm going to do whatever freelance work I can do here. The university wanted me to start teaching all kinds of things. That's what I'm going to do. Fantastic. And then I get this phone call. I just got offered a full-time job here. Just right. completely out of the blue. And without thinking, I thought, well, yeah, that's what I came here for. I might as well move, go through that. Yeah. You've got a U-Haul, put all the stuff in it, cars <laughs> on the back, hats in the box. And what, what was the connection? Right. Like, how did how did Austin P know about you? It's completely fortuitous. They didn't know about me. They knew about North Texas. They call okay. it North, they call it North Texas State around here still, even though it's called the University of North Texas now. So what happened? The chairman of the program here had just been on the NASM accreditation committee that was accrediting UNT. Their guitar teacher upped and left two weeks before the academic oh year. Oh my gosh, okay. So, bye. <laughs> and they're in this incredible bind. So they call North Texas. Can you recommend someone? Amazing. And it went to the department secretary and she called my house and left a message for my wife and I got it. Then some of the faculty there found out and they were trying to talk me out of taking the job. Really? They were saying, you know, we want you to teach in the theory program. We want you to teach in the early music program. We want you to carry on teaching in the guitar program. And if you go to this small university, you may never recover. That's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> what talking. the hell are they talking about? What are they talking about? Do you know what they're talking about now? I think so. <laughs> well, now, were, were they on the field time the job field, though? I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate. Yeah. To have gotten that job. I mean, let's just... What year What year was that? That was early 90s, 94. Right? Right. 94. And that's, that's, uh, that's about the end of the yeah. appearance of... I didn't realize the Guitar it. jobs. <laughs> there was only a couple more, you know. Yeah. So the, the, the field is... is there's no, there's, it's not like other... It's not like... I was going to say other academic disciplines. I'll say it's not like real academic disciplines. There's no... <laughs> <laughs> There's no real mobility, right? Yeah. 
you can't get a job at a smaller school and then with the plan in three, four years before tenure, I'm going to be at another school and I'm going to work my way up and move around. A guitar that's what my colleagues do. The, the people I know who teach at Harvard, Yale, places like that, that's what they do. They just flit around right. to different schools and they get... But not, not the guitarists, though. They're not, guitarists. not talking about guitarists. Yeah. And, right, right, right. Uh, and uh, physicists and things like this. <laughs> but I did actually get offered a job at a much bigger institution within two years. And I'm not going to go into any details about that. I was offered it, and for various reasons... Couldn't take it, but we'll can just you write it down on a piece of paper and hold it up so I can see it. About it when we hang up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, and this is just my own curiosity right yeah, now. Like, say this before we. I've heard I've heard a lot of these stories. Um, so when when UNT was talking to you and wanting you to stay, were they offering you full time employment, or were they oh, just saying not. here, stay here, do what you're doing? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that was the so, thing, really. Is Although I must say, as a, I think even as an adjunct, they were giving me health benefits. Right. That's that tax happens sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you know, that happens. They put their tax dollars to some good use, you know? Right. Not yeah. anymore. <laughs> I, 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 no. Well, you know. Just let me clarify this, though. Yeah. Uh, what is difficult about teaching classical guitar in certain parts of the country is that it's very difficult to find students. Right. Now, graduate students is a whole other story because I get grad students right. from all over. It's fine, but the undergraduate situation is very you're different. You're in a state university situ situation, so you're, yeah. there's a certain expectation about that that you're to draw from your state. Well, yeah, and the problem with it is that I mean, this is a conversation I've been having with a few people at the university. Actually, not really with regard just to me, but some other faculty members, junior faculty members. It's like you advertise a position and a person comes and you say to them, we want a classical guitar teacher here. Right. That's what we want. And you assume that then there are students. Now, I'm not saying that you don't understand you're going to have to recruit them, but you understand that this is a viable thing you're being brought in to do. Well, you know, in certain parts of the country, there isn't really any where you can go to find them of course right there are no classical guitar programs in the schools right there's no real interest in classical guitar in a part of the country that has some of the best guitarists in the world in just about every other style right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, that's what's that's what's been a little bit difficult right. uh you know because you don't want to take students on just to keep your job, as it were, or keep your numbers up, if you don't feel confident that number one, they're going to finish the degree, right. and number two, they're going to be able to do something with this. Of course, yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's there's it's a very difficult point. ethical question. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, I've 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 had this conversation with a lot of people, and and one of the things that that I always think of is when I was a student, I I, I wasn't fully aware of that, but I I did know that. Unlike other fields, there's it's not like a profession. Getting a, a music degree is not a professional development activity, right? It's you, yeah. you, you're not putting yourself into a workforce the, the same way you are in other fields, and and I knew that then. Um, but it was it was kind of like for that time in my life, I just thought, okay, I want to do this now. I don't, you know, whatever's at the end of this course of study, whatever happens is fine. But right now, for this this time, I have this opportunity to do this, so I'm going to do it. 
Um, and I used to describe it to my students that way as well. And, and, and I tried to be really honest and very clear with them about this, that, you know, you have to be doing this for like intensely personal reasons and with the full realization that, you know, that you might have to go do something else when you're done. There are lots of ways of looking at this, you know, and I have to say again, you know, I feel very fortunate to have this job and I've had a lot of support from the university over the years. You know, I mean, I can't complain about any of that. And it's, but, it's afforded you the, the ability to pursue some of the scholarship that, that you've done, which is, yeah. th thankfully, I, well, mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, yeah. the world would be a much poorer place without the, the contributions that you've made to scholarship, I think. I mean, you know. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> the entire world would be. <laughs> but well, the entire world, at least, you know. I've certainly the world invested in myself yeah. in some fairly meaty projects and tried to do my best with them, you right. know. And part of that, though, is is the situation that you, the professional situation that you've had, allows you the time and the energy to to be able to pursue yeah. those. You know, Although that's changing now, partly with the stay at home work, which I'm not doing anymore. But there's so much more academic, administrative stuff coming down on the faculty these days. You know that you're spending so much time dealing with things that are not related to teaching, or or scholarship. They're just the kind of work, it seems to me, that used to get taken care of in the office. Right, right. And I think it's because universities are becoming increasingly tax exempt corporate entities. Right, sure. The states yeah. decide not to use their tax dollars to fund higher education. Right. So it's an interesting situation. It's not like it was. But the thing that makes me feel a bit more comfortable about the situation is that. Um, I have a lot of students who've graduated who've made a go of this one way or another. Right. You know, and, 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 but, and have normal lives. And, you know, if, if I had no students who were making a living at this, I would have to really say, you need to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, the, 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 we, again, this is something that we've talked about many times in the past. And, and, and from what, I, what I've been able to see, the students that, that are able to make something of it and to, to go on and yeah, have, have a life and have a living and, and do this. They're all kind of doing their own thing, doing different things. You know, it's, it's not, I mean, I don't know what there, there was, it wasn't, it wasn't a discussion when I was in school. There, it just wasn't a discussion about what, what is your life going to look like when you, when you graduate and when you get out there in the world, there yeah. was none of that. It was just, yeah. it, was, it was almost like it didn't exist at all. I have zero thoughts along those lines. I just remember very early on in the first month, maybe or something, <laughs> one of the faculty members saying something to me like, well, you know, you'll be established soon and, and this kind of stuff. It was just like all taken for granted. And I'm, <laughs> You know, I was actually kind of, you know, you're talking to someone else. What are you talking about? Yeah. It was, it, that's what it was like. And sure right. enough, I mean, there were a few hairy moments early on. I've got to say, there were a few hairy moments financially, a few watershed moments that maybe could have gone either way. But once I kind of got going, it was fine. But, you know, I have a good number of students who have full-time teaching positions in right. 12 schools and in, in some in colleges as well. Right. You know, so that's possible. It, it, it doesn't happen by looking in a newspaper for an advert. Right. You have to take certain steps and position yourself and do the work that you need to do to make those situations pan out. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, right? Sure. 
right, right. But there's, there's also a, a wide variety of experiences, you know, because again, it, it, when I was when I was getting my training, you know, I. I I actually wanted to be a college professor. I mean, that was something that, that I, you know, I, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing where I, th I thought, okay, I'm going to have to make a living doing this. This seems like a decent way to do it. It was, it was really conscious for me. I was like, this is what I, this is what I want to do. This seems very interesting to me and I want to do this. Um, and I think there was, there was certainly an attitude of that's how you make a living in this field. You know, a serious living if, as a serious, serious classical guitarist. Right. You know, there was this realization that you know most of us are not going to have a performing career that that is going to support us financially. It's even, changed. You know, you know, um, it's changed, and it's going to change even more, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, it, the, the situation was, and certainly everybody that was studying then, we can't all get a full time. That's right. College teaching position, you That's know. Right. So, and I think. Uh, using some of your students that, that I, I've known about as examples, you know, they, they found different things to do and, you know, and I think that's great. And I, it's, well, I also, I mean, I probably have half a dozen former students who tackled, you know, the private teaching thing as a business yeah. professional way. And they've done incredibly well. Yeah. I mean, they have employees and Right. And their own building. They go on vacation. They have retirement exactly. plans. <laughs> but the thing is, you have to do the work that needs to be done to accomplish that. Right. It's different than practicing scales. Of course. Of course. You know, you have to do what needs to be done. But the, the, the students I know who've done it and applied themselves properly have done very well. Yeah. You know, and that's what we're moving into now. I mean, I, I have I have high hopes that the K through twelve guitar education thing will continue to it's blossom, really picking up, and that there will be a real job market for guitarists with degrees. How are they handling that in your state? Are they are they because in Ohio the way that they're approaching it um, is to take people who are already in music education give them a little bit of guitar training and then tell them to start these guitar classes. What's happening here? So in my town, there are six high school guitar programs. Oh, fantastic. Some of them have two classes, but they're all taught by non-guitarists. Right. I think and I've had a problem. I've had quite a few discussions with the school system about this. You know, if you could hire one specialist teacher to visit each school, one day at each school or something, you would see amazing results. But they don't really grasp what the guitar is and what it's capable of. You've not seen yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these classes don't really end up with students playing a concert at the end for the parents and playing some nice music. You know, it's just chords and a little bit of, you know. So it's, it's quite frustrating. And um, at one point I was asked if I would do an in-service training for these teachers. And I said, well, I don't want to because I don't want to validate what propagate you're doing. it, right, yeah. And now I'm saying, okay, I'd like to do some in-service training for these teachers because they're not going to change. So I, need, I want to improve the situation, you know. But that's a little bit frustrating, I must say. But there are places in the country that have full-time positions. Right. And it seems to be developing. It's just, I, I'm just thinking it's going to get to a tipping point. Right. And when these guitar ensembles are going to the national music educators conferences and regional conferences and showing, showing how well they're doing, you know, I'm not sure that a guitar orchestra though is, is that impressive to a band director or a core director. It's a bizarre animal. It's a very, it's a, 
valid training tool, sure. but I think they would be much more impressed to see a guitar quartet playing the hell out of right. some. Absolutely, yeah. You know. But you can, yeah. I mean, there is the idea though that you can you can certainly, you know, have a program that's orchestra focused and then extract, yeah. you know, absolutely the highly talented students from that and send them <laughs> around. But you, you're not. That's not going to happen with a general education. Yeah. specialist you know that's that's well, that's that kind of thing is going to require a good specialist it'd be like us trying to run a string program right, right? yeah and, i've got no business doing that you know one of my former students is teaching full-time in vegas he, he runs the varsity guitar program he was on the cover of soundboard magazine issue oh my gosh before last i think it's like is that luke i've never been oh on the gosh. bloody cover of soundboard magazine <laughs> I can't even get a review in somewhere. <laughs> no matter how much I donate, how much does it cost now to get a good review in a magazine? <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> but you know, he's um, he's become expert at the on uh, distance learning online stuff. You know, but I did a master class for for, for his, a couple of his classes a few months ago over Zoom. So this kid's about fifteen or sixteen. He plays. Where's the, uh, you know, the A minor violin fugue, right? Okay. Nailed it. Just nailed it. Yeah. Amazing. I said, wow, that's amazing. How long have you been playing that? He said, oh, about three or four weeks. Oh, my God. Stop. <laughs> <It's> like, <what>? <laughs> but that's <laughs> a good sign, though. That's a good sign. It's amazing that the standard, you know, when you get a proper teacher in a situation like that, amazing things happen. Right. But it's not, but they don't happen when you have teachers who's, they don't have this, that's not their specialty. Right, right. And then, you know, there's this whole question of the established pedagogy, too. Um, you know, comparatively, it, it, and it's changing, thankfully, but, you know, typical situation for an 18-year-old violinist or pianist going to college, they're already playing at a, at a professional level. And they, yeah. they, they've got a high awareness about the repertoire. Yeah. They play chamber music. They played with symphony orchestras. You know, that's a very common experience for those students to have. Whereas, you know, an average 18-year-old classical guitarist started playing classical music six months ago. Yeah, they've been playing guitar shredding right. five years, and which has given them a lot of coordination right. and things like that. Yeah. But they've just started, they've, they've heard about Bori, and now they're, right. <laughs> you know, they've seen the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I think things like, you know, the, 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 the guitar in, in, in secondary education, K through 12, hopefully is going to start changing changing yeah. that I, I, I feel that I think it's a slow change but I feel that's definitely definitely what the sh future should be and I, yeah. I also think it's probably what the guitar what the value of the classical guitar that's where it really lies sure there's always room for composers to write complex sophisticated music and, and virtuoso performers to play it for a small audience right <laughs> and how does there's a, you know it's never going to be a, there's never going to be a mainstream audience for listening to Bach on the guitar with a bit of Takamitsu at the end right, right, or even right. Piazzolla you know this, right. if you want to hear Piazzolla this is for the tango man right of course but there's always going to be some players who can who will have something that's so compelling that there will be an audience for it you know but the idea to me is it, and it's really just like what the guitar has always been if you look at the history it's a recreational instrument Right. That goes through phases of incredible popularity. Mm -hmm. you know? And the idea of using the guitar as a kind of fine arts credit in a high school, getting people to collaborate and enjoy music. 
no. that's great. That's fantastic. That they can carry on through the rest of their life is a tremendous, yeah. tremendous thing. And and I think the guitar the, is the potential in the only instrument that can do it that well is the guitar. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many styles, there's so such a rich culture, and it, and and that develops an audience actually as well. Yeah, absolutely, it does. Yeah, yeah. sure. And well, that's one of the things. One of the things that we've seen here in Columbus with the with the Guitar Society here, you know, there there's a core audience of of people that come to all the concerts, right? Yeah. You know, and we we don't have giant audiences ever. You know, and that's fine. But you know, the, the society, <laughs> the society is it's self-sustaining, and 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 it's been able to survive for thirty years, and, and it's, it's great. Um, but you know, the core audience is built of people who are recreational guitarists. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and who knows what their experience was, what they were, what they were introduced to as young people, and but it's something that that has you know, attach itself to their lives. And, and the, the end result of that is these are people that pay attention to guitar things. They still go to the concerts. Yeah. They like it. So it's, yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's a real positive of, of this change that, that we're seeing in the, the case. Well, something I have to say about the GFA, I mean, I was on the artistic board for about a decade, you know, whenever that was, 90s, early 2000s. And at that point, there was a lot of talk about guitar education, but nothing really happened, you know. But now, they've come so far yeah, with that. They're doing this cool kind of FA TV and and the whole, and you know the regional symposiums and everything. It's amazing to see that, you know, because it's, it's so important. Yeah, long time coming. It, it wasn't sexy enough in the nineties, you know. <laughs> but we all wanted to be either scholars or. Uh, Virtuoso, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> but um, it's really great to see this embrace yeah. of the real issue that they had, you know. Yeah. The organization has, has, has really done great things in recent years, I think. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So let's let's get back to the publishing company thing. That That's really yeah. interesting. I mean, because I know, I know that you've, you've always had a very active... And I, I, I think impressive. I mean, I, 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 when I think about um, the the body of work that that, that you've undertaken scholarly, um, you know, I, 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 it's pretty impressive to me. You know, and and it, like some really important work, all of a, of an extremely high quality that that I'm not used to seeing in general as applied to the world of guitar scholarship. Um, so it, it's, but this, is that, was that something when, when you decided you wanted to have your publishing company, was that, was that kind of how you were looking at it or is that, was your scholarship, I guess what I'm asking is, was, was your scholarship kind of an outgrowth of that seed? I found it, I found the idea of self-publishing very attractive. I, I love the idea of doing my own typesetting and making it look beautiful. Yeah, and yeah. layout and, and learning a bit about typography and stuff right, like right. I just found that just, just your editions look great they, they, it's I mean, a nerd like that. fantastic uh, I mean it's not I mean I did I did have an art exhibition when I was 16 at school oh my god I could do drawing a bit I'm not great or anything <laughs> you know, but I I can do a little, yeah. You know, I, I can paint. I could do watercolors of a of a wine bottle with all this. Right. I can do stuff like that, you know. Right. But I wouldn't call myself a graphic designer or anything. But I got a little bit of an eye, right. a little bit. But all that appealed to me, just the kind of manufacture of it, right. you know. 
But then the idea of just being completely in control of publishing whatever I wanted, not having to ask for permission from anybody else. Like, you know, and I, I already had a big, I mean, a big wad of handwritten transcriptions. I mean, I transcribed the complete works of John Dowland one summer. My goodness. I've got, still got them downstairs. They're written in brown ink. You oh know. my gosh. It's like this. Yeah. And, you know, and even, that wasn't the only Luke composer I did. And I transcribed lots of Scarlatti and Weiss and Albanese and Granados and Handel, all kinds of things. I was constantly yeah. transcribing and arranging. Just because you wanted to do it or because you wanted, wanted to, to play it? Or... I wanted to play the music. I wanted to experience the music by playing it. Okay. So you get Diana Poulton's complete works of Dowland. It's on a piano staff and it's written a third higher. Right. And you almost have a mental breakdown trying to, I mean, you can do it, yeah. but it takes a lot to do that transposition right. and play that complex music. So I thought, yeah. I'll just, I'll just write it out. Started writing out pieces that I liked and I just carried on. Right, right. <laughs> and I never published that, you know, and it's probably too late now, but no, yeah. God. Anyway, I was very interested in that. You know? And um, I think the first thing I did was a bunch of teaching materials for the beginning guitar class at North Texas. Okay, sure. Stuff like that. And I, want, you know, I wanted to, you know, I, I was always giving handouts to my students, and even in Liverpool, of exercises, and I wanted to have it all printed up. And I thought, I'll just, I'll just publish this stuff myself. Right. And I, get, I may have been inspired by Matania. I mean, I'd met Matania in 1990. Okay. When I was in the GFA competition final. Right. When he came up and said, uh, congratulations, you've won the competition. I said, well, we're not at the final yet. <laughs> <laughs> that was the semifinals. He said that to you. <laughs> semifinals. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't on the panel, though. He wasn't on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, you, you couldn't res resist a personality like that. You know. Oh my God! Yes. But I saw this guy who'd retired from the airline business early. Right. Right before retirement age, in order to run a publishing company for guitar, because he and, and I thought, yeah, there's something to this. Oh, I'd like to do that as well. You know, yeah. <laughs> so it may have been hey, that's 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 fantastic. That's that's great. So, it, I mean, you you have done things now under your own publishing. Yes, yes. So I, that was that was after though. I mean, you you didn't. No. So later, oh, when I got the job here, I know. That kind of publishing idea kind of went away. I was, you know, okay. my salary and my family situation was such that, ironically, I had to go back to playing concerts. <laughs> there was no work in Nashville for a classical guitarist who can sight read. None. <laughs> That's so <laughs> it, I think it probably is now, but there wasn't then. So I had to go back on the road. And what happened, because of the GFA competition, and especially because of my Mel Bay publications that were being advertised in every magazine, Right. in every bloody country, every issue, and getting reviewed. I started getting concerts all over the place. Right. So my concert career as a full-time faculty member was actually much bigger than it was when I was a freelance concert player, playing bigger venues. I was playing some Ticketmaster kinds of things, even. Right. I still got some of those posters, you know, LAGQ, Eduardo Fernandez, Stanley Hitz. <laughs> <laughs> You know. So, what was your first? What was your first readily available publication? Was that the Bach? Yeah, I think the first article I published. Well, in England, I published some Dowland and Scarlatti. I think in the guitar. Okay. That was. This is a funny story. I was still an undergraduate, but my teacher Neil was 
involved with that magazine and he said hey you should send that to the magazine you know we'll put it in so it went in and i remember i was waiting to go into class with my classmates and i had the magazine and i said look and it, and it said, you know, about arrange stanley yates and this student she said to me wow there's another guitarist called stanley yates <laughs> So I've done that, but um, what were we talking? I forgot what we were talking no, about. I was asking what your first publication was. Oh yeah, so the first article I published was about Bach. Okay. Based on a lecture I gave at the GFA, I think. I think it all happened at the same time, and then the first publication. Then I, you know, so I did those Bach things as um, as a pro just as an intellectual project, really. Right. We weren't. I didn't really think about them for playing or. Um, or publishing, I just did them as a, a working out of some ideas I had about it, and I just did a few, and then I thought, well, I might as well do them all then. And then I'd get a talk, you know, at the GFA, and then after that talk, I'm getting every publisher there is saying, oh, you know, wants me to pub wants to publish my things, and I'm saying, well, I wasn't really thinking of publishing them. Interesting. I remember talking to Bill Bay. I mean, had you had you done all the transcriptions at that point? Uh, I don't think I'd done them all, no. Okay, yeah. It took another year for me to... I, in fact, I, I abandoned the project, and it was oh, only... Oh, my gosh. To, I'll tell you what happened. So I, I was I was, I was very quiet in those days as well. I mean, I'm a pretty introverted person, really. <laughs> I'm, I'm mulling around the Mel Bay thing. There's no one there, and Bill Bay you know, he tries to talk to me, you know. Hello, hi. And he asked me my name, because put my accent. And, I, and he said, oh, you're the guy who's just in the bark thing. <laughs> oh yeah, he goes. You know, we, we'd really like to publish that. And I said, "Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not really thinking about publishing it." He goes, "Well, you know, we could do a really nice edition or something." I said, "Well, you know, it would have to have a lot of text." Oh, we can do that. It'd have to, it'd have to have about twenty thousand words of text. Oh, we'll do that. I said, it'll have to have the original cello scores in a comparison. Oh, we can do that. And anything I asked for, he said, "We can do that." Amazing. So I said, "Okay, you know." And then Norbert came up and said, you know, Stanley, I've heard about these cello suites, you know, uh, you should record them for next house. It's all happening at the same time. And uh, he said, you can come up to Toronto and record them all in one, one day. Like, Jesus. No, I can't. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so I got to work on it again. And then I lost steam and I just didn't finish it for about a year and then Bill Bass finally said Stanley someone else has sent us a manuscript of the cello suites if we don't get yours we're gonna have to publish theirs wow I'm sure he was just BSing me you know right <laughs> I just finished it off over the weekend <laughs> sent it yeah but then I was on a roll you know it did so well and got so many great reviews and everything that I then went on to Albanius Right. That got the same, incredible reviews. Then I was, my next one was Tarraga. I did the DVD and I made the written CD. Right. But for reasons that will remain undisclosed here, uh, didn't get released. The DVD did. And uh, then a sore was going to be, what I did, I went through the. There was, there, was a, there was a print publication that never saw the light of day on that. Yeah. Tarraga. Yeah. yeah. I was going to do all the ornaments and all the style stuff. Right. And, um, what I did, I did the bark, and then I thought, all right, you know, Mel Bear said you can have your own series. Right. Okay, what shall I do next? So I got the GSP catalog, and I looked for the composers that had the most pieces. So the, 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 the most prolific composers for the guitar in order are Jazz Bark. Right. <laughs> <Albania. laughs> 
<laughs> then it's Francesco Tarraga. Right. Then it's Soar. Right. Then I think it's Scarlatti. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to go through it in that order. Right. You know, but I, I kind of lost steam and um, got into other projects, you know, like that Sonata's project. Right. You know, I got asked to write the article for that Spanish compilation and source and others, and that was 64 pages oh, of yeah. serious research. It took me a year, and uh, that led me into getting more involved in 19th century guitar. And uh, that project, you know, Mel Bay decided eventually that eight volumes of sonatas was not probably right. something to publish, you know. It's like, well, thanks for telling me now. They're still on my computer. <laughs> they are. Yeah. We, I, I, they're still on your computer. Well, where do you think the Machica edition came from? Okay, so we, we need to talk about the Sonatas edition because this is, is something that, that, from your first mention of it to me, I, I, I always thought that this is something that, that needs to see the light of day and, and, and needs to be out there in the world. So you did, you did this project. It's how many volumes? It was planned as eight. It, uh, okay. Well, probably would have had to have been more because I've gotten so many more sonatas. Right. right. So, and, it, and it's all just 19th century guitar sonatas. All late 18th century, early uh, 19th century sonata form, sonata okay. form pieces. So and and you, had, you had arranged it, like, in a, from what I remember, you had arranged it in a really interesting fashion. Like, rather than being, like, a volume of one composer, a volume of another composer, you, you were... You were arranging them according to the type of sonata. Things like that. Structurally. Yeah, so the first volume which I'd completed was uh, the earliest sonatas. So these are sonatas from... Proto-sonatas. Yeah. yeah, from let's say 1775 to 1800. Right. Agassi Guzman. Uh, uh, Antonio Abreu, Aris Pacachara, these kinds of things. A lot of them for five-string guitar. Amazing. Wazi, lawyer. Uh, so, yeah, basically five string guitar and six string guitar, but, you know, but up to 1800. And uh, from Sweden. Oh my gosh. Uh, the keyboard is taught by Haydn. Trill Labar, a Haydn student. See, we, we need this music, Stanley. You, you have to publish this. So, oh, I just got a very kind email from a very prominent Italian scholar talking about this very topic. He's going to write a book on it. Fantastic. I need to respond to his email, just having that I time. I think so. <laughs> but, and then, then, but then I, I was going to do a volume of Vienna. Right. So we could have Vienna in one book and see what was going on. But Giuliani, has, well, not Giuliani would, have, Giuliani would have been in the book because he's only, he's only got three, right. not a one word, and one hybrid. Sor was going to have his own book, obviously, and Carulli. Right. Might have needed two. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> you know. Then there was going to be a book of Italians. Moretti, the two Morettis. Um, Pacini. Um, I can't even remember the names now. <laughs> Ragnani. Uh, anyway, yeah. And then what was interesting, you know, is that the guitar sonata, by about 1815, they stopped writing them. Just a few outliers. Right. A genre that only lasted about 20 years or 25 years. Same for the piano. But a lot of it. You know, the 19th century romantic piano sonata was a serious business written occasionally. Right. In, in 1800, they were publishing hundreds of the bloody things. Right. So, yeah, interesting. And it's very interesting, actually. You know, you read about things in books and you get taught things at school. 
And then when you look into it for yourself, you realize it's a whole different story. You know, that Sonata forms don't have development sections. Only a few of them do. Right. They have, they have, they have sections of contrasting tonality. Exactly. You know, yeah. but if it's Haydn or Beethoven or Mozart, then they actually have some thematic right. stuff as well. But, so, but to just kind of learn about all the different sonata styles, mm-hmm. and how they were played out in the guitar repertoire at, at a recreational amateur level and at a concert level, yeah. it was a bloody big project. Yeah. And so, I don't... So did you finish it? Is it? I mean, did... did oh, really. Okay. There's a hell of a lot of work left in that. There's a lot of text, right? Right. And, I've, and in the interim, I've got a lot more sonatas. Right. right. I'm, not so, even, I'm not even really looking for them either. <laughs> if I really want to do this, it would be a lot of research. <laughs> well, you know, if, 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 if there were any way, anything that I could do to, to continue to prod you to, to please, 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 for, for the sake of everything holy, finish <laughs> this project. I mean, well, like, there's, there's, there's nothing, there, again, back to, like, when I look at you and what I know about you and your career, like, the, 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 the scholarship just is so, like, head and shoulders above everything else that's, that's out there. And I just, well, you know... Not I'm anymore, thinking, not anymore. There, well, are some, there are some serious... Well, but you, maybe you set the bar for that, though. You know, um, I think. I think that anyway. Well, it's interesting when someone like Christopher Page at Cambridge University, who I just watch with awe when he does right. his Gresham College lectures, and I think, oh my God, you know, this is like tremendous, genius. You know? And then I finally have some contact, and he says, "Oh, I, I have you on my te- my edition right now on my table." <laughs> Like, that's fantastic that's you, know, you just don't imagine yeah. when you put something out that it really is circulating really right right yeah. well I, I think you know it, it it it's a testament to how hungry people are for really good information and and, yeah. and when you do something that that is a landmark contribution you know people have never seen i mean the the bach for example i mean how many hundreds of bach cello street transcriptions are there in the guitar repertoire but there's none that did what you undertook in terms of like if you really want to approach this music here here's what you need to think about you know i've always done the same thing i've always taken the same approach and i've always had the same impetus i've wanted to know what the rest speed the prelude of the prefugue allegro until i was about 17. Right. And no one I asked could tell me. Right. They just they ignore them. Right. And I just like, well, they got to meet them, you know. Right. And then, but, you know, the, I just, so there's this idea in the guitar world that was on every LP of Bach, and all the liner notes were always written by John Duart, I guess. <laughs> you know, I would always say, Bach left us wonderful models for arranging the cello suites, the guitar, and we can now arrange other things along those lines. But it occurred to me that no one was actually doing that. They weren't using Bach's model. Right. Yeah, they were adding bass notes, but they weren't using Bach's model. And I thought, they haven't, they haven't looked at it. They haven't analyzed it. They haven't analyzed what he did, or else they, they, they wouldn't be doing it this they, way. They'd make different choices, yeah. It doesn't sound like Bach. Right. right. So I decided to analyze what Bach did right. to the best of my ability. And then I drew some conclusions. And then I tested my conclusions by taking the first cello suite right. and applying those ideas. And it came out to my ear extremely well, right, just the sure. way it sounded. Right. 
you know, it's like these are the correct, these are correct notes. These are correct contrapuntal notes. And the rhythms I'm using are continual style rhythms, the way that Bach did in, you know. And we have examples of all of that. I mean, of course, I can't. I can't come up with a bass line as good as the one he came up for that gavotte in the third cello suite. I can't do that. No, but I can do something. Right. You know, I can be Bach on a very bad day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the other thing is, is it, it's all, it's all speculation, right? And, and, yeah. and it's an, it's an experiment and you can be very clear about these. This is the experiment. These, these are the, um, the criteria that, yeah. that I'm using to come to the conclusions and hey if you if you don't like it then you also have the freedom of doing your own right finding but you but you're very clear about what it I think, is i think i said it's on the first page i hope absolutely. this will be used to people i hope it will spur you on to make your own arrangements right but and what i was really saying i knew it was going to be provocative at least I, I thought i was making a provocation i think it ended up not being provocative people just took it at face value and started playing it Right, right. I thought they would go, but, you know, my idea was if you're going to arrange serious music and play it in a serious way, you better have a serious process as well. Right. Absolutely. Not just add notes that's, oh, that sounds all right. I'll, I'll have that. Right. I did the same with the Albanith. Right. It and I think that, that that step in and of itself is, is a step that, you know, it's unusual, like to do to, to undertake that process in the world of guitar transcription. I I find it to be, you know, that's it's, that's not that's not the common experience, right? Um, and and the thing that gets me is yeah, most transcriptions and arrangements. I mean, I, obviously, I've only seen one percent of them. Right. But the ones I've seen, probably nine out of ten, are just not done well. Right. Well, yeah, what I think is too difficult. They don't sound good. I think there, when there's too many times when you see guitar transcriptions that are obviously reworkings of other guitar transcriptions. They didn't even go back to the original source. Yeah, we won't mention any names. <laughs> but yes. But I, you know, it's obvious when that happens. You see. How it. many times are people going to transcribe John Duart's 1961 shot edition of the first cello suite? <laughs> I'm doing my own it's my own fingerings. So I mean if you want to do a Bach transcription, I think that you know the, 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 the first step is make sure you go back to the Bach, right? You know? Um, yeah, I would say that would be a good starting point. <laughs> but it doesn't happen. I mean it, we no. know this. We know so and and but your clarity of like you said, the clarity of process is really important and that, I mean that's that's just fantastic, and I think you've done that with with everything that I've seen of, of your publications. It's yeah, stuff you... that I want to know myself. You know, right. there's some stuff I published that's been fairly successful, like the graded repertoire books, right? Right. That was not my idea. Nelbe just asked me if I would do it. Right. So I thought, well, let's see what it's like to do one of those. Right. How but can you, you selected the repertoire? How, yeah. How can you do this well? What are the issues with something like this, and how well can you do it? Right. And that, again, led to a slightly different kind of approach, you know. I mean, Bill wanted me to do eight, eight grade books, like the graded exams. So I started the first one, and I immediately just changed course. It's like, I'm going to do it. Every style period is going to be covered. It's going to go from the very easiest possible. Everything's got to be really attractive and good. There's got to be modern stuff in here. 
and I, I don't know how it happened because I said to Bill, we, we can't just publish a bunch of Karuli and Soar and stuff like that. Right. We need to have the stuff by the modern day people as well. And he said, well, you will get, you will get no royalty because it will come out of your royalties, the license. <laughs> and I said, do this. I said, I said, I'm going to, this is an amazing thing that happened. I said, I'm going to send you a list. I planned out five volumes, right? Okay. Which went, the fifth volume would have been things like uh, the easier Walton Bagatelles, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So pretty, you know, advanced. And I said, I said I'm going to send you a list of pieces and their publishers. I want you to write to them and offer them one cent royalty and tell them that we're only ever going to publish a piece that's from a set of pieces and on that page we will advertise the whole set what it's from and just about every single publisher said yes my goodness all up faber novello recordy shots wow. so wow. i've got the publishing rights for <laughs> some things for a penny <laughs> for a cent royalty yeah so if i had 12 or 15 copyright pieces in a volume then I would lose 15 cents of my royalty. My goodness. Right? Amazing. Pretty amazing. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so even with that, I, you know, I worked as hard as I could on them. Right. I did all the little extra touches that people don't probably notice consciously. You know, that every page has a header with, with some information. Mm -hmm. There's an index at the back of all the technical things that are covered in oh, different pieces. Yeah. Oh, every piece has a little bit of information at the bottom. Mm -hmm. What is Packington's pound? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Right. right. You know, <laughs> and I can find that stuff out, though, you know. Right, right. So I, I probably spent a year on each of those books or something. I mean, they're great. Every day, obviously. Yeah. But I try to do my best if I'm going to put something out. Of course, of course. Now I want to get, I've got a whole slew of guitar ensemble arrangements, about 50 of them. Mm -hmm. Because I've been teaching here 26 years. So I've got 52 semesters. Of guitar ensemble and oh each gosh. and most semesters I arrange something. Right. Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Mammal the Fire, Respighi, yeah. Haydn, you name it, you know. Right, sure. So I can now publish the Led Zeppelin and Beatles stuff on Sheet Music Plus. Okay. Which is great. Don't get a massive royalty, but I can do it. Right. But I'm in my summer is looking like this. I'm going to try to get all those ensemble things recorded. I've recorded my Gaspar Sands suite, overdubbed all Excellent. the parts, you know, get all the fingerings and the arrangements really sorted out. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and get them out. Because I think there's a, I think well, they're, yeah, they're useful. They, yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're you know, I've, I've, I've played, played a number of your arrangements with the, the faculty ensemble at, at CCM and, and they're great. They're I, have a, I have an approach that is centered around idiomatic fingerings for the guitar. Right. And not having parts where suddenly two notes just join in for a second and go away again. <laughs> <laughs> again, there are some very, very bad ensemble arrangements. Right. There are some very good ones as well. But I mean, there's two aspects. I mean, there's a creative aspect. I don't really do creative arrangements where I rewrite harmonies and make up introductions. I do you know, kind of technical arrangements, you know. Sure. Transcriptical. They're practical. Practical, yeah. yeah. But, and, you know, there are some very good ones around, but there's a lot that are just so inelegant right. that they're not enjoyable to play and they end up not sounding good. Right. When you're not playing a line that makes any right. sense. Right. The line has to be so expressive and intelligible. And, uh, 
And if the players aren't enjoying that connection with the music, they can't play it well. Right. You know, but there's this idea with arranging for guitar in general that you have to keep as many notes from the original as possible. Right. And that's, that's mistake number one right there. Right. That's mistake number one. <laughs> yeah. Great. You need the notes so, that sound good. <laughs> so yeah, so the, how many publications do you have out there in the world? Do you know? Books, you mean? Editions yeah, and all that? Yeah. Twenty maybe? Yeah. Well no, I just published eight Beatles, so that's twenty eight. <laughs> they don't count though. Beatles don't count. In fact I should publish them under a pseudonym. I published them with Sheet Music Plus because they own the they have the print rights. Oh but fantastic. It's, but it's only download, you know. You have to download five dollars or something, you download them. And in about ten years, I might get a two two dollar royalty check. When when did you put that up? It was recently. Uh, yeah, uh, probably maybe over Christmas. Okay. Well, congratulations. Yeah. I've not announced it or anything. I'm yeah. just playing playing with it. You know? <laughs> but I, I, I'm pleased with the editions I put out with you know Amazon. That's worked out really well. Those two technique books. Sure. You know they sold like crazy. That's great. That's fantastic. It's like, why have I been taking publishers' royalties all these years? <laughs> you had to, right? <laughs> I had to, yeah. So, so you know, it was it, great it, to get that stuff so out of my system. You have finally, like, realized your dream of having your own publishing company. I have, I have. <laughs> After <laughs> all of these years. I better move back to, I just need to move back, move back to Liverpool now. <laughs> 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 and the, and the trick. The trip would have been complete. I would have worked my ass off to get out of England. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. But, but, um, you know, I like so we that, should, that, that my Czech edition, I, I think, turned out well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the Vivaldi edition, that was, a, that was my test project. Great. I think that turned out well. Yeah. I like those arrangements, those pieces. I, those, those pieces are very attractive. Yeah. And the arrangements are very playable and, and really nice. I've, I've used them with my students. It's not like a contribution to the world or anything, but, you know. So, and that's, uh, we're all talking, you're talking about self-publishing now, which is something yeah. that, that, you know, is a relatively recent possibility, I guess, yeah. you know? Well, the um, technology is there now, right. and the infrastructure is there. And we, and we should definitely talk about your technique book, because, you know, I think, again, it's something that, that, that is unique in, in several, several well, factors. Well, it got you know? insane reviews and endorsements from people who should know better. <laughs> and I'll just I will mention, it, no, it has not been reviewed in Soundboard magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and I pay membership dues. <laughs> and how long has it been And I'm appearing like... for the scholarly journal. Well, maybe that's why it would be seen as a conflict of interest or something. Yeah, I know. Self-interest. It doesn't matter. I just can't help but joke about it. Well, it, it's it's strange. I mean, it oh, is, yeah. it, it's it's odd that it that it's been ignored that way. But um, so it's been out like, gosh, been a few years now. Yeah. Five, is it five years? Four or five? Yeah, probably, yeah. I, I'm, I, I, I'm I'm very bad at guessing that. I, it, oh, I'm God. always like, oh, yeah, that came out last year. And people's like, no, that dude, that's been out a decade, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, it, I, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> and it's, two, it's, it's, it's two volumes. You worked yeah. on it for a really long time. I know it's that. It's 10 years of work on and off. Yeah. Right. And even longer than that, if you really want to. But what I started doing about 10 years ago, uh, you know, I mean, we all have this experience when we're teaching. In every lesson, something occurs to us we never thought before. Right. 
right? If we're paying attention, right? But, but you know, <laughs> and I've always felt a bit guilty that I'm the one who's learning when I'm teaching. That, you know, I should be paying them, really. Right. <laughs> but at a certain point, I started just some things. I think, oh, I need to remember that. I'd write a certain fingering thing or a, a certain little thing to practice. You know, I just start, started making notes on expressive phrasing things and technical things. I ended up with two massive folders for each. And I've still got to write the, that's the book I want to write. Yeah. That's the book, I, that's the book I've always wanted to write. It, it, will will, will, will that be a companion to the technique book, or was that, is it going to be a separate? Completely separate, but it would have to have lots of videos and listening and stuff. Yeah. See, people say it's not possible to write a book about that, but I disagree. I, I think it is. I think people have done it. I, I think they think people have done it. Awesome, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> not for guitarists, but <laughs> yeah. they wouldn't read it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, Richard Tuff's book on Bel Canto is... Yeah. I mean, I would just write that out again. <laughs> just change, every time he uses the word voice, change it to a guitar. Yeah, just do a word search. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I decided, you know, th this thing, it went through different incarnations. So I, I was going to do it around 2000. So I started writing a series of kind of pamphlets, you know, arpeggios, scales, slurs, position shifting, you know, and I, and I had about 12 of them and I, I had a lot of examples and all that. And then I started thinking, well, am I really expecting people to buy 12, <laughs> 12 books and somehow figure out how to use them all at the same time? Right. So I gave that up. Plus the internet wasn't quite ready for the online delivery really at that point. And then I started again and decided I was going to make a, a one big, a big volume. So I, I put them, so I put them onto one big volume arranged by area. And I, and it was like 400 pages. And I thought, how the hell is anyone going to use this? <laughs> Useless. You know, I mean, you could use it as a footstool. Maybe. <laughs> So then I realized I had to really do buckle down and do what needed to be done. I had to really sort this out into a usable right. systematic thing. And that's hard work. Yeah, it is. I had to figure out all the streams. I divided it into right-hand and left-hand streams and, and put it in two volumes, one dealing with the foundation technique, much more exercise-based, and the second one dealing more with advanced technique and musical context of it all and all that. So, you know, it's a lot of work, the last couple of years of it. Right. It really was a lot of work. And I, every time I open it, I find a typo. I can, I, <laughs> the beauty of it is that I can upgrade that PDF and upload it to Amazon and it's fixed immediately. Oh, fantastic. And I feel sorry for the people that got the first version. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's a trade-off. I mean, in the past, you, when you were sending stuff off, maybe it would have been proofread for you and, you know, I used to have a bunch of people proofread for me, you know, and uh, find a lot of stuff, but mistakes still always. You, you can't write that much without, you know, I mean, it's a, like. It becomes you know, something you become, creepy, you know. blind, you know, you become like snow blind to right. it, you know, you just imagine what you think. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so the approach, you, it's, it's two volumes, you have the, the right hand, left hand streams, and you actually have suggested like practice regimens as well. Like there's charts and 
Yeah, if you're working on this, if you're working on this set of arpeggios and you're going to do all these things with them, then here's a, a weekly plan. Yeah. Cycle through them. And if certain ones become comfortable, you take them out and just play through them and you keep the other ones cycling. Right. And it will take you 12 minutes a day to do this. Yeah. How did you come up with that? Did you, were you experimenting with different things with your students? Um, not really. I didn't really guinea pig my students too much. I don't really okay. like <laughs> but how, I, don't, so, but, I don't want to completely mess them up. Right. Was it just a, like kind of like a theoretical construct? You thought this this is about how much time it should take somebody to do this? Well, I, yeah, I thought, okay, all this information is good. All these exercises make sense to me. I think they're valuable exercises. Some of them are generally known kinds of things, and others are a bit different. But I, again, I was just thinking, how does someone use this? You know, people don't sit down and practice technique for five hours a day. Right, nor should they. If they do, they're doing something wrong. Right. Uh, so it's like, well, how much could you really expect someone to spend warming up and then doing a technique routine? If they're fairly serious, maybe half an hour. No. Right. If they're really going to be a professional player, then they're going to. You can expect to do an hour or even more. But I'm thinking more of the average kind of serious recreational, you know, undergraduate maybe. Right students and all that what's reasonable and i thought well it's not unreasonable to spend 15 minutes on some right hand stuff and 15 minutes on some left hand stuff so that was kind of my okay my benchmark to not go over 30 minutes a day you know and there's a warm-up routine that can take it from a few minutes to a long time depending on how you go about it but anyway i just tried to make a structure so it's usable yeah so, you know, and I thought, you know, you can't do everything every day. You shouldn't do everything every day. It's much better to cycle over two-day cycles just for our brains. Right, absolutely. Apparently, yeah. you know. Yeah. And for your body, too. You know, the, the, yeah. give, give things some rest, you know. And, you know, in that second volume, I also, like, for example, there's a bit of, there's a few lessons. There are 81 lessons, I think, altogether. Okay. It's organized in lessons, in the two volumes. And, um... I think it's just one lesson on basic tremolo in volume one. In volume two is about three or four lessons and it goes from you know refining tremolo to the crazy tremolos, rack tremolos and things like this. But I also have a lesson on the historical context of tremolo technique. Right. You know, and the fingerings that were used yeah. in various eras. You know, and how it evolved and everything. That's smart. It's good. Trying to make it a bit more interesting. Right. And there's always sure. it's less abstract that way, isn't it? You know, yeah. it, it, you have well, I, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to divorce technique from music, right? And I think that when you practice technique, right? you have to put it in a musical context. Once you've got that thing automated, it has to go in a study of some kind, so you play music with it, or else it doesn't get internalized right. right. It doesn't get internalized in a, in a musically useful way, right? Right. So. Anyway, for me, it was a catharsis just to get all that. <laughs> I say to my students, yeah. Yeah, I've given you the book. Why are you asking me that? It's on page. <laughs> yeah, you just, your lessons now are page 59. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ask me another question. Page 72. <laughs> well, that's like that joke, uh, that famous joke at the, uh, the Borscht Belt club the comedians old comedians all sitting around the table and this guy's watching them and they go 42 they'll start yeah, laughing. laughing right <laughs> this guy comes up he goes 13 and they just look at him <laughs> he goes, well, why, why aren't they laughing well, it's in the way you tell them <laughs> that's 
no, I still have to teach technique. Right. Uh, you know, technique is not my go-to thing to teach. Right. Really, it's not the thing that occurs to me. It's always the music that occurs right. to me first, and I want to talk about that. But I have to discipline myself to talk about technique right. with my students. You know, but I try to teach technique through pieces, right. with exercises, but, be, but more through pieces. Do you, and do you use those your your books as like required texts for your university students? I've given all my students have book one. I just give it to them as a gift because okay. I bought too many for myself and I need to get rid of them. <laughs> taking up too much space in your house <laughs> so I, I give them to my students and i suggest that they do the warm-up routine and stuff you know but i don't require I, I don't require my students to do anything of my stuff okay i just don't want to cross that line right right so very few of my students do the cello suites wow you know <laughs> unless they really want to do them it's got to be their idea i'm not going to say uh we're going to do Charles Suite number one in my version, going by the music. Or here it is. You know, I'm just not going to do that. Right, right. That's that's highly ethical of you. <laughs> something, isn't it? It's something, yeah. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, um, it, it, it's funny because I, I, it just now crossed my mind to, to, that we should talk about this too. So uh -huh. you, you did, you did some duo recordings with some hack out of Columbus, Ohio at one point in time. <laughs> yeah, I believe, <laughs> there was, I believe there were two and a half. <laughs> two and a half. Two and a half CD. Oh, oh no, that shit's been deleted, man. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. it, it we don't have to go through the editing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Yeah, but people people should know about these things because uh, absolutely, you know, they, yeah, they exist. They're out there in the world. I saw them on Amazon recently. Yeah, I've and, seen uh, them you know, on YouTube. There, there are they're on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. That, that is true. Um, so I actually. Yeah. I actually assigned one of the tracks for the uh, guitar lit listening. Did you really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> I think it was uh, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> so, but anyway, we, 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 should, we should talk about that. So you and I did these recordings yeah. of, of Karuli. And the first first volume is all uh, pieces that he arranged from other composers, as Beethoven yeah. and, and Haydn and uh, Rossini. Fantastic arrangements. Yeah, they're really really something else, and right. it was a lot of fun to do that. And and then we we for some stupid reason decided to do another one. Um, but it's all again, it's all cruelly, but it's original. Yeah. So we was it the Nocturnes or the Serenades, the second one. <laughs> I probably should know this, right? You know, that's like Jimmy Page saying, "Which albums stay with to heaven?" On right? <laughs> yes, it's just like that. It's exactly it's like it's not that. like that at all. Actually, I know. We did, I think there's this Opus ninety six, the Serenades, right? Uh, that sounds right. Could be. The good pieces, aren't they? Yeah. They are. You know, he was a, really good. a real composer. So yeah, he, he had all that party menti down and all the forms. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so those are those are those are fun. And I I think if I'm not mistaken, those might be the only recordings featuring Stanley Yates that are still in print and readily available to human beings for purchase. I believe there's a I believe there's a recording by the Turtle Creek Chorale. That Naxos have that has me playing guitar on it. Really? I think so. 
Oh, fantastic. There we go. My photograph in the liner notes, but you don't see it. <laughs> no, it was, it, it was for, for all, the, all the angst and consternation that the, the editing process it, uh, provided, I have to say that, that working on those was, for me, a, a real, real high point artistically, and, and I, I'm very proud of those recordings. Well, I am as well. It's a lot of fun. The trouble with me... <laughs> what, one of the, which wait are you, are you just first one on the list or <laughs> well you know this, I mean this is not uncommon is it I don't like my recordings <laughs> you know I don't Listen. I don't think they're not for you your recordings are not no, for I'm, your enjoyment no, they're for other people the trouble is family. I listen to them it's like oh right. it needs to be this way and it right. And it just, all right, so I can't be, but yeah, you're right. It's not for me. It's not for me. I, I, I hey, we got two of them all the done time, now. You know, what's that? We've got two of them done. I know. It's and they're proper projects. You know, it's not I, just, I, here, here are some random duos that everybody plays. Right, right. You know, we took Karuli, who is a massively mis, underest, a massively underestimated guitar composer. Yes. Uh, and, and did a serious job with those pieces try to really bring them to life and, and play them in a proper way yeah it's a, i think it's i think it's important work and I'm, I'm 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 happy and proud and honored and all these things to be a part of well when it's done the com gets updated i'll put them on fantastic excellent that's just not been it's been waiting an update since 1999 <laughs> so i need to get it onto squarespace and you do, you, do, you, do they have any photographers where you live <laughs> Don't. <laughs> I need it. Yeah, I need a photograph taking. It, it's it's been it's been a well, the one that Manuel used is from like the year two thousand. I know, but it's all that was taken, of that of was taken at the Nashville Pornographer's Studio. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we're now we're getting somewhere. The, the podcast begins I went, now. I, you know, I went on Music Row to get some headshots, uh, something. No, it can't have been headshots. I was in there for something, and I said, "Where can I get headshots?" And they recommended this guy gave me his number, his card. So I went, made the appointment, got the stairs. I'm in there. It's a bit. And then these two women arrive, and and they're talking. I can hear them talking. It's like this is a full blown pornographic photography studio. Amazing. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's fantastic. Pretty, pretty embarrassing. So, so they, they obviously had to crop those photos for publication on your editions. <laughs> <laughs> I do have another photograph that was taken about 10 years ago. Uh, this was one of those classical guitar magazine deals where Paul yeah, Fowler yeah. or someone would interview me. And then they would say, and get a new, get a new photograph taken for the cover. Right? They, want, they always want, they don't, you know, they want a, something. Right. So you go to a professional photographer and you pay a bunch of bloody money to get the right. photo. Then, you, then you, you're not on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> it goes inside this big in black and white. <laughs> No, it's good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Hey, we've been at it for almost two hours, Stanley. Right. <laughs> I, th it's, it's, I, I think we, we can we can wrap this up if you if you're okay with that. Yeah. yeah. Thank no, you been, so much. It's been it's been it's been fantastic. Uh, very entertaining, and uh, I will I'll let you know when when we're going to go to air and when this is going to be out, so you can let all of your adoring fans know. Yeah. So does this go on YouTube? 
It, it will be everywhere that, that podcasts that. will be. Yeah. I, yeah I'll I, put I, it on I'm, my... I'm new to the podcasting world, so I don't really. Right. But there will be an RSS feed and yeah. iTunes and iHeartRadio and Spotify and all. With all the video, right? Things. No, just audio. Oh, just audio. Okay. Yeah. So you, you combed your hair for nothing. Right. Put a bloody shirt on. God. I've been working on motorcycles all morning. I didn't I didn't bother to clean up. I'm a greasy mess from Well, I'll <laughs> certainly be happy to uh, uh, put it on the my Facebook page and all that. Absolutely, kind of yeah. Probably send it to I could send it out to my all those kind people who've signed up for my newsletter and never received one. <laughs> you need a better better publicist, Stan. <laughs> But it's it's been been an absolute joy. It's been great to talk to you again, and, and thank you for for being with us. And uh, yeah. I hope that you'll agree to come back at some point in time, perhaps. Absolutely, yeah, it's fun. I think there's just tons of stuff we can talk about, really. You know. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, we we just scratched the surface. So now I've got this. Time. I've got this class tomorrow. What's the class? With Manuel. Oh, the the, the master class, right? Yeah, I'll be there. there are eight too. people signed up. So I said, how long are they getting each? And he said, 10 minutes. There you go. I was like, well, I suggested 15, but uh, uh, my, I have a special folder for this masterclass because my mother sent me now about 50 emails. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it, you know. Yeah. Well, and you're doing I, one. Well, I'm doing one in, in, in August. Yeah, I did one last last for him I think I'm not sure but uh, yeah that's been that's been really cool what he's he's done with that you know that's great um, so and I, I went to the Juan Martin I went to the Juan Martin how did he get Juan Martin he has some personal connection with him I, huh. I think it, at some point in time he studied with him or something I'm not I'm not really oh. sure yeah it was it was great um, it was really enjoyable so alright I'm gonna stop recording here alright Carl well have a good good rest of your day well thank you This is Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. <laughs>